This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Just wanted to take a brief moment to give you guys a little idea how we do it here at Paddle and Fin Podcast. We use the Anchor.fm recording platform. Super easy, distributes our podcast to many, many different platforms. There's creation tools to allow you to record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. Check out anchor.fm or download the free Anchor app to get started. Did you know you could help support the podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash paddle, the letter N, and fin. You could also do so by going to anchor.fm forward slash paddle, the letter N in fin. This segment is brought to you by Jigmaster Jigs. When in doubt, get the jig out. Go to jigmasters.com, use promo code PNF20 and save 20% off your jig order. Welcome back to the Paddle and Finn podcast. I'm Brian. I'm Jay. Tonight, you guys, we are bringing you round two with Josiah Pleasant and a very special guest, Mr. Dan Lasota. Is it Lasota? Soda? Uh, Lasota, yes. That's what I thought. I meant to ask you that before we started. Epic fail on my part, but I was close, right? So, um, you know, uh, Dan... 
is visiting Josiah up there. Um, he currently resides in Nepal, correct? Yes. So we'll, we'll definitely dive into that. But um, we wanted to give you guys a little background on Dan and uh, before we jumped into the whole episode. Um, if you guys haven't heard part one of this uh, with Josiah, please go back and listen. Uh, Josiah just kind of, you know, blew us away in the last interview. Uh, Jay felt like he had accomplished nothing in life after talking to him the first time. So we're going to do even better at that the second time around, <laughs> which is still the current record. <laughs> yes. I'm holding it strong. <laughs> so, uh, Dan, where are you originally from and, uh, how'd you get started in fishing and, and what's kind of your go-to style of fishing? So, um, in terms of that, I'm originally from uh, Pennsylvania. Okay. Uh, a little city called the Scranton, uh, home of the office. Um, yeah, that's my hometown. So, um, so um, since I was two, three years old, I was fishing with my dad and uh, my grandpa. And fishing has always been a big part of my family. Um, so, um, we had relatives that lived on the lake. Um, I spent my summers growing up living on a lake, um, spent, um, and then we moved to a lake as well. Um, and after college, I ended up living on a lake on my own. So my whole life I've lived near the water in some sense. Um, say I've been fishing since I was two or three for the last 30 years. Um, for me, it was always a big thing with my dad. That was the thing we, um, I mean, we've gone on thousands of fishing trips. Um, so my, my favorite, uh, you asked me my favorite type of fishing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you uh, like mainly a bass fisherman, fly fisherman? What's... So, so my favorite uh, species um, has been trout fishing, um, specifically steelhead fishing. Um, Spring, Spring Creek steelhead fishing is my number one favorite thing to do. Okay. Um, just catching a 15 pound steelhead um, on five pound tests in a creek and, and chasing it downstream a couple hundred meters is just uh, my favorite times. So, um, but um, along with that, I mean, um, I'm not a, I'm not specifically one type of fisherman. I do center pinning, I do uh, spin casting, I do fly fishing. It depends on the species and the situation. and. I use any method. So. You're, you're a generalist. Yeah. Yes. I'm nice. not. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool, man. Very cool. So you currently reside in Nepal. What, what, what made you decide to move there? And then kind of what do you, what do you do for work out there? So my, my, my professional background is construction management mostly, uh, but along with that is business development, um, architecture, and other aspects of construction as well. So um, a lot of my background is experience and expertise in um, housing construction for marginalized people, actually. Okay. So I've worked with many NGOs, many organizations. I've had the opportunity to Uh, countries, a lot of those countries, um, I was supervising or managing or working on projects in those countries. Um, I've had the opportunity to go to 48 states. Um, a lot of that was through projects and volunteering as well. Um, so I love to travel, obviously. Um, and a lot of those projects, what I do is I have expertise in sustainable building technology, 
alternative methods to building that may not be conventional in the U.S., but in total countries in uh, rural areas. Um, specifically dealing with disaster areas has, has been my background, mostly. Okay, okay. Very cool. So, I mean, over to Nepal in 2015, after the earthquake, um, 600,000 homes were destroyed. Uh, many lives were lost, unfortunately, during that time. And so I went over in response, it, um, and I've been working there with an organization based out of Nepal, and we work on projects in coordination and partnership with other NGOs um, or the local government or any other organization. That that earthquake in in Nepal that was the one that um, that was the one that kind of wiped out the base camp at Everest, right? Yeah, it did a lot of damage at base camp. Um, during that time and then also so Kathmandu the main city got hit but the epicenter was actually outside of the city um so not a lot of the damage was um in these rural villages and just the entire village um got destroyed in in a lot of places so our work has been in those areas areas that are only accessible by helicopter um areas where you can only get materials in by donkey or mule um, I've, and so I've been managing the logistics and managing the procurement and kind of the, the, the project process for all of that. So it's been really interesting, uh, being able to work in an environment like Nepal. Well, I know Jay's got a logistics background. So, I mean, how do you feel about that? You, you starting to route donkeys up, up mountains, <laughs> two by fours. I mean, I, I can only imagine I mean, we kind of dove into this a little bit when we first talked to Josiah, you know, um, he's trying to get some kayaks up to him. And obviously, you know, he's only accessible by boat or by plane. So, I mean, I could only imagine what it's like in Nepal. I mean, you know, <laughs> we're, we're I, just... don't, I don't think there are <clears throat> procedures known to me in my line to get stuff to him <laughs> like but i'm sure that there's a middleman some kind of a broker that force you know sees that and arranges all that coming in you know so i'm sure there's a point where it stops but yeah that sounds i mean i can't in what's the trek too i mean even from like the nearest point where you get materials from and then you have to you know bring them in by mule like how far is that so, transit so it would be three days by walking um but when you're bringing in 20-foot pieces of steel, it's not possible to bring that by mule. So one specific building project we walked on was uh, 50 homes up in this remote village. Um, I think it was five or six helicopter trips to sling load um, all of the steel material. And then all of the cement bags, and, and we actually used soil to build the, the walls using an alternative method. Um, so if we used a 1,000 trips of mules um so about 25 mules were available so each mule made 40 trips roughly so it took 60 days of 40 uh 25 mules every day just to get the materials to the site that's so a thousand mule trips just getting local materials up from the river to the sites yeah and i'm sure it's on those really skinny trails too they're not even Vehicles can't get on there, obviously, so I'm sure that's nice and treacherous at times. Yeah, Nepal has a reputation for being dangerous. I mean, every year, trekkers die, unfortunately, even just on the trails. Um, 
that are made for mules. There's just the trails are that small and along cliffs that there's not enough room for people and mules to take those trails. So uh, there's a lot of accidents that happen every year. Josiah, have you made it out that way to Nepal yet? I have, yeah. What'd you think of it? Um, just in well, general, obviously the stuff he's doing too, but. Yeah, Nepal has an interesting mix of um, uh, folks coming from developed countries striving to do good. I think the earthquake in 20th way. Um, Nepal also has a unique mix of minority people groups, like folks that don't speak the primary languages, and so they're totally separate and apart from the rest of the world. And that's what brought me to Nepal. So I was working with folks that they have little to no written literature in their own language. And obviously that creates a huge barrier from an educational standpoint. That creates a huge barrier, you know, for young ladies that are trying to understand, you know, how should the world be? How should life be? All they know is what someone tells them kind of thing. And so um, at the same time, there's all this uh, outdoor adventure sports business presence. So it's a weird mix of the uber wealthy trying mm -hmm. to go on mountains next to folks that have never read their own name and who have you know no uh, economic possessions to speak of and so you know i've i've worked in africa i've worked in latin america and i would say nepal is a really unique mix of you've got folks going to kind of live uh um and an abstract dream to most of the world. It's pretty abstract to spend 50 grand plus to climb a mountain to most of mm -hmm. the world. And these are people that are, they don't know where their next meal is coming from. Um, you know, Dan worked very specifically in putting housing together for folks. And so it's just a, it's a weird deal when you've got abject poverty next to extreme wealth. And, and Nepal has that. Um, Nepal is also unique from a developing country scenario because it actually has a cooler climate once you get up high, which for polar bears like me, it's kind of nice. Uh, and I, I'm not a huge fan of sweating all the time. So, so Dan and I actually jumped on a on a, a dirt bike and we went about 70 kilometers into the Himalayas um, surveying a project. And we actually made the first descent on a, a river, it's called the Sankoshi, um, on paddleboard. So there, this rental place had a paddleboard and I was like, hey, can we rent that? And they looked at me and they're like, you want to rent the paddleboard? Why? <laughs> well, you know, has anybody ever gone down this river in a paddleboard? They're like, no. Yeah, they're like, no, dummy. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, hey, look at this guy over here. Coming up <laughs> <out of> top. <laughs> he's like, yeah, yeah, give it. Okay, give it to him. All right. Hey, yeah, we'll give it to you. <laughs> So Dan and I stay with this uh, uh, local gentleman who is working with us from a nonprofit standpoint to help uh, a minority people group. And so we're staying at his place and his son speaks pretty good English. Like he spoke really good English. His name is Philip. And he kept, he always had a smile on his face and he looks at me. He's like, a leopard ate my goat yesterday. <laughs> I'm like, okay, Philip, that's fantastic. <laughs> This place is off grid. This yeah. is legit. And he's like, ah, leopard's going to eat my goat again tonight if you don't help me. And I'm like, okay, what do you need? We'll yeah. oh, check it out. Sure enough, there's leopard tracks in the dirt around this place. So next morning, Dan and I get up and uh, we, we got a kayak and a paddleboard 
So we make first descent on this river. And it just strikes me that Nepal is such a different place because here we are doing some really purposeful work. There's some folks, not, not in the area that we were, but there are folks going to primarily Everest that are quite wealthy and there's such need here. Um, what a cool convergence of outdoor adventure and trying to help people. And so that's that's what I was yeah, yeah. doing on that trip is creating economic opportunities. There's a fish called the golden moss here. It's a bucket list fish for a lot of people. And so uh, while making first descent on this river, part of my role was to figure out, is this river legit for golden moss here fishing? As we're making this first descent, um, oh, I, what was it, 20 minutes into the paddle? And it's class five. I mean, it's... Class our... five on a paddleboard? Wait, wait, really? Oh yeah, yeah. We we, we got our 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 butts handed to us. It was it was pretty fun. <laughs> you got uh, wet? Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> oh man, you would have to like stand up and just surf at that point. I think. Oh, it is. It's it, literally you're in surfing stance. Oh my rapids. But we go, you know, about 15 minutes in, and I'm keeping my eye out for fish as we're going because the plan is to come back and fish spots that we identify are pretty solid. And we knew that no one had kayak fished it ever. So from a kayak fishing standpoint, like, oh, this is gonna be awesome. 20 minutes into it, these locals have car batteries in backpacks with wires connected to the car battery onto a metal pole, putting it into the water as we're floating by the water and the fish are just coming to the surface electrocuted. Oh we're my like, God. I think the fishing's off the table. I think yeah. <laughs> Fishing golden moss here in this river. It's a fun paddle as long as you don't get electrocuted. But <laughs> so you know, we we make it down, and it was a, it was a fun paddle. I mean, we we hit some crazy rapids. Um, it was a little bit more fun in the kayak than the paddleboard at times. But um, yeah, it was it was it was fun. But that float to me sums up Nepal. That you can engage in some outdoor adventure activities that are mind blowing. Just an absolute blast. There's a lot that can be done to bring economic development to people by developing those activities, which Everest is a great example of that. Sherpas are, um, I would say, more than any other country I've been to, recognized and honored and compensated fairly. Um, Nepal gets that. In terms of being a country where poverty is so great that people would, rather than fish sustainably, electrocute the water and kill every living organism, that still goes on. And so it's a contradiction, right? Like, hey, come mm -hmm. to our country for commerce. And by the way, we're electrocuting the water. I so, never would have thought that was even an option. That's yeah, yeah. Crazy. You know, I mean, I would have thought of netting first. Yeah. Sure, sure. Um, and there were nets all over. There were tangled, gnarled nets everywhere. We were ducking nets and going over nets. And But um, this, you know, uh, our, our developing countries from, a, from the kinds of things that you on this show showcase and that all four of us care about deeply, those resources are either gone or they're going gone. The only places that you can go to find a sweet fishing adventure are heavily patrolled by heavily armed uh, national forest guards. Those are the only places where you're gonna find fish. Um, if it's an area that's not heavily patrolled, you know, it's uh, good luck <laughs> to try to find fish. And we went remote. I mean, if we would have kept going on the road that we were on, we'd be in Tibet. We're we're pretty remote, you know. Uh, clutched on a dirt bike, holding a flat rock for seventy five k in traffic to get to this place. And... So we were just um, an hour and a half from the Chinese border, actually. So. Oh wow! So, so I mean, it, is that the reason for the armed guards? 
Uh, no, this spot had no armed guards. That's why they're electrocuting the water without repercussion. No, no. I mean, I'm just talking to what you were saying. That like the only good water that's left is patrolled by heavily armed. You know, I mean, so why heavily armed? Is that protecting the resources, or is that because of the Chinese border? Oh no, resources. Just, Absolutely protecting resources. resources, and, that, and that's the, in a different location. So right. that is down south in a very famous uh, national park, which has a very large uh, golden mosquito population, which is a very, very uh, popular trophy fish for a lot of fishermen. <laughs> and that's where they go. But unfortunately, um, I haven't had the chance. But that is a a tourism, um, fishing tourism spot, and so it, that means it's expensive and. Uh, there's a lot of rules against that, but it's a great location if you want to catch that fish. So. But they do protect that resource there. So there is an example in Nepal of a resource being protected, but yeah. the amount of money that goes into it is significant. Do they protect the fish as their primary resource? No. Their primary resource they're protecting are tigers, elephants, and rhinos. But if you're already protecting tigers, elephants, and rhinos around the fishing holes, it kind of protects the fish too. Sure, 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 sure. And they do, they do have uh, a lot of regulations in place concerning the mosquitoes, such as catch and release only, and all those typical standard rules for that. Yeah. Um, but I would say, from a fishing standpoint in Nepal, um, it, there's still a lot that needs to be done. Um, there's no, there's no fishery program or anything like that. I, the rivers and the mountain streams, there's a lot of opportunity. Um, in terms of trout, I think so much can be done. Um, I know India over in Kashmir, they've started to do a few programs a couple of years ago, and they have a great rainbow trout program now up in Kashmir. So it's definitely the waters, um, the condition of the water and the geography definitely supports trout being there. Um, it's just, um, it just hasn't. There's just, in my opinion, just not enough programs in place yet, and I don't know if there's going to be. So there is there native trout in the streams in Nepal? Is that what you're saying? Uh, Josiah can help me out. I think it's snow trout. Yeah, but snow trout is not a salmonid, so they just they call it snow trout because okay. probably some is European it? was like, ah, that's a snow trout. Okay. <laughs> it's not a salmonid, but yeah. So I think it might actually be part of the of some type europeans are great for showing up to a place they're not from and saying i'm gonna call this thing that you know yeah, 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 right. that's a, my name's stellar it's so stellar. They do have <laughs> what they call it and even the golden marseille is also technically part of the same family the golden marseille is not a trout or anything like that um i don't think there's any native trouts in nepal that i know of okay i, I know that Northern India and Bhutan actually have decent trout populations, but that was because they were introduced uh, decades ago and they just reproduced. Um, does not that hasn't happened in Nepal yet that I am aware of. So. Gotcha. So uh, one thing I wrote down here as we were talking, and you were talking about the language barrier and things like that. What what is the actual native uh, language of of Nepal? Or is it a mixture of some? Well, I'll speak a little bit about these questions. Uh, my wife is actually Nepali too. I don't know if I mentioned that. Um, so the main language is Nepali. Okay. Okay. I didn't know if it was Nepali was, or Nepalian or, or what, what the proper term was for it. There, there's many districts throughout Nepal. 
um, such as the Gurung district or the Tamang district. Um, and so they all have their native language. Okay. And those are actually all people groups too. So that's the, and, and a lot of people from those tribes do speak those language. And a lot of people living in those villages don't speak Nepali. They only speak their native language. Okay. But if you live in Kathmandu, you speak Nepali. That's um, Kathmandu is the capital city uh, for those that don't know. So you're pretty fluent in Nepali? No. <laughs> because no. I've had to learn good English. <laughs> My wife speaks pretty good English, so I don't have to <laughs> worry about that. But um, <laughs> I, I, I know conversational level, I, I'm not uh, that in-depth as I should be. How do, how do, how do you... We went to where we were paddling. They didn't speak Nepali. They spoke oh, okay. Tamil. And so literally, you know, for what for us is American... Yeah. adventurous dudes it was a very short distance but literally that's like going 40 miles in the u.s and the next town over does not speak your language at all that's you know you crazy. think the are intense and in quebec this is a whole sorry we literally don't speak your language hope and, you can learn ours and even though in the national language is nepali i mean if my wife went into those villages they won't understand each other so it's that much different <laughs> that um the neighboring districts don't even understand each other's language at some times. That's crazy. How do you say have a nice day in Nepali? I'm putting you on the spot. Don't put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> He's like, like this. There's different ways to say it. There's not I say namaste. Way. You could say namaste, which essentially is kind of a yeah. respectful way of saying have a nice day. Okay. That's also when you greet someone, namaste, and then when you leave someone, namaste. But you can also say, see you later, see you tomorrow. Uh, Pachi Patola is see you later. Okay. Um, Pachi Patola. Got it. Namaste is because it's like, be peaceful. Have, have a good, a really peaceful path. It's nice. It's like, so, I like having an O2 word like that. We should have a word like namaste. Yeah, yeah totally. Totally. And just one more, one more interesting fact I wanted to say was that, so back to the districts, I mentioned the gurungs and the tamangs in, in those, uh, those uh, many more. Um, so those are all different people groups of where they're living. So the people group that lives next to where Everest is, um, Everest is, so the most concentrated Himalayas or Neo Everest, and that section is called Solukumbu. That's where some of the tallest mountains in the world are. So that people group that lives next to that is the Sherpa people group. So a Sherpa is not someone who climbs. It happens to be a people group that is very, that is uh, lives in a high altitude and happens to be very good at climbing. But um, yeah, this is a fact that a lot of people don't necessarily know that. So a Sherpa mean that's the last name. That's a people group. That's a tribe. But Sherpas happen to be the best climbers in the world as well. So, absolutely. The Sherpa, the Sherpa dudes, when you go hiking with them, it's unbelievable. So, this guy, you know, it's the Rudy Rudiger thing five foot nothing, 100 nothing. Yeah. The dude hauls 400 pounds on his back up a freaking cliff and doesn't swim. Some of these guys, are, it's just, it's unbelievable. They're, yeah. and, and part of it is, it's a session. So, I was born in the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado one of the highest towns in, in the lower 48. And so I've got in my blood the ability to deal with altitude, right? So that's 7,500 feet. 
these guys are born at like it's like 14 yeah 14 16 18,000 their ability to acclimatize i mean literally their blood's different the way their muscles function with oxygen is different so they're they're super a lot of the villages and tribes are between 10 and 15,000 feet yeah yeah, I'm uh, I'm kind of an Everest geek. I'll let the cat out of the bag. I've watched like numerous like documentaries <laughs> and things like that on Everest, and you know that's one thing that's always fascinated me is those Sherpa people or the Sherpa folks. Um, you know because it, they like you said they're born at a high altitude, and and it's funny when you see interviews of some of these like world renowned athletes, the Sherpas are kicking their butts climbing the mountains and these guys are struggling, but yet they're supposed to be some of the most, you know, well framed mountaineers of the sport. You know what I mean? So it, it, it's kind of crazy, man. Um, so the, the image to capture for everybody listening is you've trained your whole life to climb this mountain, hundreds of thousands of dollars. You eat the best food, the most expensive food, You've got a 50-pound pack that you've meticulously organized everything in. These dudes have a burlap sack full of rocks, smoking a cigarette, and they're roasting you up the mountain. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's hilarious. They're just smoking a pack as they're going <laughs> 20,000 feet. That's crazy. That's crazy. Well, one of the things when I was uh, digging around uh, and, and, and looking in uh, some of Dan's background I mean, you, I, I saw quite a few pictures of you, you know, hiking through some pretty high looking mountains and stuff like that. So, I mean, is uh, mountaineering one of like your other hobbies, so to speak? So, so I grew up in an uh, avid outdoorsman and was always into extreme sports. So, I mean, um, yeah, I enjoy hunting and fishing and ice climbing and rock climbing and mountaineering and whitewater kayaking and um, kind of anything else um, outdoors, um, I've done a lot of it. Um, so in terms of mountaineering, yeah, I've got to do a little bit in Nepal. So I've gotten to do two kind of small expeditions in the last four years. And the you most- just did one, yeah? Yeah, the most recent one, um, I was able to go to just under 19,000 feet, which is a very small Himalayan <laughs> mountain. <laughs> small. <laughs> Dude, I would be puking. I already know it because I have trouble in Colorado sometimes. <laughs> Our biggest mountain in all of North America is not that much taller than one of his baby mountains in the Himalayas. Like Denali is, is our legit mountain. Yeah. And for those guys, they're like, oh, that's cool. You climbed Denali. All right. Dude, and it takes a long time to acclimate, too. I mean, for my snowboarding years, you know, I mean, I've been to Steamboat, too, and I mean, that's like, you know, 13, 14,000 feet, some of those peaks. And it's, I mean, you, you it takes a minute when you come from Illinois at 260 feet, I think. And then you go all the way up. To, dude, I was sick the whole time. I mean, it hit me so hard. I couldn't drink enough water. I drank no beer. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think, what was it, the, the time we went to Steamboat, no joke. We were there for four days, the whole trip. I'm pretty sure, and I got this documented, I think, like, I puked 13 times. Uh, dude, all I ate was crackers and iced tea. That's all I could That's all I could stomach the whole time. <clears throat> Man, it was rough. So I know, like, just being able to climb that high, I can't even, it's, it, 
I probably couldn't do it. It would take a long time to acclimate. Plus, I'm pretty sure we're at different levels in our fitness. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure that's not working in my favor either. So so Denali, <laughs> Denali is also known as Mount McKinley. That's the highest mountain in North America at 20,000 feet. 20,327 feet. So Dude, you're like, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I can only imagine. That's rough. Do you got to take it slow at that altitude too? Well, especially when you're a newbie. So when you're doing 18,000 feet, do you have to stop to let your body acclimate to, to get oxygen back into your blood? Kind of like they do when climbing Everest and things like that. Yeah. So it, it depends on, the individual, it can be you need to acclimate at, um, I'd, I'd say the average might be 4,000 meters. It may be 5,000 meters. Um, 5,000 is roughly a little less than 18,000 feet. Um, so some people, it's 3,500 meters. So it kind of depends. So I, I live, I lived in Nepal the last four years. In Kathmandu, I would say it's similar to Denver um, in that 6,000 feet. Okay. Based on um 7000 i'm not sure exactly but um i actually was fine we, we did acclimate one day but um base camp was at about 16000 feet and then we went up to 19000 on summit day and then um so it wasn't too bad for me i was i was climbing with a good nepali friend of mine and the two of us just went up by ourselves and we didn't have any issues um so everything was pretty good so that's Man, once, once you get above six thousand meters, that's it's a little more technical, a little more detailed. You need to take more days. Uh, that's when it gets pretty. It gets more intense above six thousand meters. So I was at about fifty six hundred meters. Ask them what they did when it got really cold at night. How did they over, overcome the cold? <laughs> Do you guys this see? sounds like a loaded question. <laughs> Where you no, I, I was I was teasing with him before, but. Uh, <laughs> So what I was what I was sharing with him was actually um, there's a very very iconic mountain in Nepal, very similar to the. You sidestepped the question already. And, well, I'm <laughs> gonna, uh, so the Matterhorn in Switzerland is is one of the most famous mountains in the world. Um, there's a mountain in Nepal called Machu Picchu, and it's this very iconic pyramid shaped top mountain. So we were actually summiting the mountain right next to that. Um, okay. That mountain is actually forbidden. You, you can't climb it. Uh, the government doesn't allow anyone to climb it, and it's never been summited. Um, it is considered a holy mountain. So we we were climbing the mountain directly next to that mountain, and at night, our base camp was at the base of this mountain, which has 80-degree to 90-degree slopes, and there was five or six avalanches throughout the night. And we're sleeping at the base just a couple hundred meters away from this mountain. Um, so all throughout the night, we can hear these giant avalanches happening above us. So That's crazy. It warm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he's, I'm so cold. Yep. <laughs> so I, so I told him, man, my solution for that's easy. I got two Labrador retrievers. I never yeah. have with another dude my dogs keep me warm <laughs> <laughs> crazy it's one of those things man you, you gotta do it to to stay warm if you want to survive that's crazy dude 
Well, that's nuts, man. He, it, what an exotic place. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, I, go ahead. Go yeah. Ahead. So I just, it's going to be a, a little bit of a story. So there actually is a story that happened with that. So just to give you a rough idea, um, in the first two days, so we started, um, we started an elevation of uh, 4,000 feet, and we went up to just under 19,000 feet in four days. But the first two days, so we went up 13,000 feet in two days. Um, and and just to give a little bit of perspective, this is a mountain that is not traveled often. Um, a lot of people don't climb this. We were the only group in the last three months that summited, that tried to summit. Um, and by the way, I did this in monsoon season, um, which wasn't wasn't the best idea. But uh, due to timing and logistics, that's the, the week we had to do it. So it rained every single day. Um, we're right in the middle of monsoon season. Um, and so with rain and melting snow, there's a lot of issues with that as well. And uh, there's a little bit of danger um, that could happen with crevasses and all that as well, which we did run into crevasses at the top of the mountain. But um, but my background, I have a little bit of background in that. So so we were able to um, climb safely to the top. But so so there's no water resource. Um, a lot of trekking routes, a lot of popular mountains, they have they have places where you can refill on water and they, they have um, whether it be a spring or something set up. And it usually tells you on a map. So this mountain didn't have any water resources. So you have to carry your water with you. So needless to say, I was carrying 30 kgs um, backpack. So I had a 67 pound backpack uh, that I carried up 13,000 feet in two days. Wow. So um, I, I had, but he had to snuggle with the dude to stay warm. So he just say he's gonna get it out of you. <laughs> that didn't happen. But, <laughs> so, uh, so just to so what happens in Nepal stays in Nepal. <laughs> it, was, it was because I was carrying 11 kg of water, because you have to carry enough water for two or three days. Uh, there might not be a water source for three days. And we actually did go two complete days without seeing a water source. Uh, and, that, and that was because we were climbing on a ridge. There was no rivers. So, um, I mean, once we left the trail, we didn't see um, any hikers or anybody for the next seven days. So it was just us. So the interesting thing, we actually we got lost. Um, like I said, it's not a very popular mountain, so there's not a lot of trails. So it, it was a little bit in the wilderness, um, in the middle of the forest, in the middle of not seeing a human for four days, we ran into this little old man in the middle of the woods and he, he actually helped us get on the right track. So that was just a Sherpa shepherd that was, um, taking care of some Himalayan sheep at 12, 13,000 elevation. He had his, um, he had his what do you call a group? He had his herd of 500 sheep and he was out there with two other people. So, so we ran into these Sherpa shepherds in the middle of Nepali wilderness and we were lost and they kind of saved us. So, so we ended up crashing with these shepherds and hanging out with them in a tent and, and helping them take care of those sheep. And, um, so yeah, it was a fun experience. And we actually took the day to acclimate at the uh, tent, so we end up hanging out with these uh, shepherds, and uh, it was just a wild experience. So. That is crazy, man. Yeah. 
Now we know how guys warm at night. I notice your ending of your story is kind of short. That's a, I mean, you know, well, you know what? The story sounds great, and like, there's one thing ringing in my head from what you guys were saying before. Um, you know, mainly about how poverty stricken the area is, especially after everything. Then you've got these rich people coming in. Um, you know, doing the 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 ascent of Mount Everest and everything. Um, you know, like is what is there like a designated portion that goes to the local people when you come in to do that? I mean, is there any kind of program set up like built into that? I because mean, it, it sounded like you you alluded to it a little bit, but I'm wondering is there any anything more or to um, you know? Because I mean, I I could see what you're saying of being weird seeing you know, these uber rich people come in and, you know, there's, you know, people that are, uh, <clears throat> you know, that live in the area that just don't have basically anything except the basic means to, to live, you know? So, I mean, that, it's a lot better than it used to be. Um, there's a lot of programs set up. Um, a lot has been done. Um, like you pointed out before with the earthquake and, um, at the, the Kumbu icefall is a very famous area of Nepal. It's the num- it's the first section out of base camp when you're climbing Everest. Um, there was an avalanche a couple of years ago, and um, several Sherpas lost their lives. So so it's instances like that um, that a lot of programs have been built up to support the families of these Sherpas because that was their income. So um, there's there's been a lot of uh, programs and people that have come in to help with that situation specifically. Um, and that's bringing attention to other areas of marginalized people throughout Nepal as well. But there has been a lot done to help the Sherpas um, in terms of wages and salary and also to help the families if anything were to happen as well. Okay, that's good. Yeah, I mean, I would think that they would set something like that. I mean, if you got that kind of money coming in, I'm sure somebody's going to figure out how to sublet some of that and push that towards the locals. Yeah, and... Um, and those, those, I can't think of any of the names right now, but those, uh, those world-renowned mountaineers that come to Everest almost every year that have helped uh, set up, um, you know, training programs, or programs in Kumbu, uh, such as the Kumbu um, Climbing Center and places like that, it, it, that really provide a great educational uh, benefit for a lot of the families or, or the locals, or, and it, it just helps out the Sherpas and helps out the locals a lot um, in different areas. Yeah, from some of the stuff I've seen, you know, going back to the the, I know what you're talking about that uh, avalanche that hit the Kumbu Icefall. Um, I know there was there was kind of like a um, trying to think of the right word, almost like a fund set up for the families and the Sherpas that lost their lives. Yeah. But I think that from the last time I saw, and I could be wrong, like I think a portion of the guide fees for everybody that climbs Everest goes to the local village just because that is their main source of income. I could be a hundred percent wrong. I don't know. Going off of documentaries. Don't believe everything you see on TV and the internet. So, <clears throat> well, I'm sure they're smart to it. I mean, they've developed some kind of commerce, some sure. like some kind of a, a, a plan to be like, Hey, we got these rich people coming up here all the time. 
we should get some of that money. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it always makes sense. Definitely, there's definitely programs in place and partnerships in place like that. Yeah. I don't know um, the any specifically <laughs> or the names of those, but I do know they're definitely in place. And a lot more have popped up over the last recent years. Um, so it's great that um, there has been a lot more attention to that. Heck yeah. The trouble with a lot of that stuff is government efficiency because there's funds coming in from the guys paying that, you know, what what amounts to them to a surcharge. But does that money end up in the hands of oh, the, the folks most? And um, unfortunately, the answer is oftentimes it doesn't. Um, but that's the intention. So, you know, is it better to have something that's broken but trying to do good? Versus nothing, sure, but boy, there's there's room for growth for sure. Very cool. So uh, we'll we'll get off the mountaineering subject. I know that that's kind of off topic from what we normally talk about, but I think it's very very interesting conversation, and it's not very often you could talk to somebody that lives in Nepal, right? So uh, definitely wanted to touch on all that good stuff. So let's, uh, let's jump into the Fly Fishing Collaborative. Both of you um, ha- have, have seen what this has done. Uh, Josiah is a little bit more involved than Dan, uh, but Dan uh, ha- has seen it firsthand on, on what this program has done um, and, and things like that. So, um, you know, since 2013, there's been uh, the, these aquaponics farms built in Zimbabwe, Uganda, Thailand, Rwanda, Belize, Kenya, Mexico, and Nepal. So, I mean, that's kind of spread worldwide. So, uh, why don't we jump into what these aquaponics farms are and, uh, and how do they work necessarily? What's, what, what's the whole thought process behind this? Yeah. So, um, you know, Bucky Buckstabber is the executive director of Fly Fishing Collaborative. Um, for a couple of years, I've had the opportunity to serve to offer guided uh, kayak fishing trips for folks that uh, believe in the mission of Fly Fishing Collaborative. And those guided fishing trips are auctioned off at a yearly gala. So that gala will be March 6th, 2020. You'll be able to hear a bunch more about our project here in Juneau at that gala. But that's been my collaboration up until the past um, six months um, when I've become uh, what amounts to kind of a national or country or site host for a fly fishing collaborative project. So um, my involvement the past six months, I've, I've needed to become a student of what uh, Bucky's built in terms of mobilizing the fly fishing community, um, utilizing the intention of many of us to do good with our fishing, right? Just fishing just to fish is, it can be pretty nice, but what if we can take our fishing and do good with it? That's kind of the gist. So Bucky and I connected over that. Um, That's been a part of my life independent from Fly Fishing Collaborative. But how sweet is it to plug in with an organization that has track record and proof of concept, helping the marginalized, but doing so through something that you're passionate about. And, you know, for some of us, we're, we're okay at fishing. So it's kind of neat to use that for good. That's the gist. In terms of uh, the farms themselves, uh, the way I view it is there are situations and times and places where it is not feasible to farm by conventional means. 
So the farm that Fly Fishing Collaborative built in downtown Kathmandu, Nepal, there's no soil hardly anywhere. There's a zoo next to where they uh, built the, the aquaponics farm, and that's about the only place that has soil. And even the animals at the zoo don't seem very happy about it. So there's there's no soil in Kathmandu. It's a concrete jungle, right? So if you live in that downtown area, which millions of people do, it's a huge city, where are you going to grow your food? Well, generally, most people aren't. So you're at the mercy of those food commodity prices. And Kathmandu, surprisingly, is a fairly expensive place to try to make a living. So what that aquaponics farm does is it's a soilless farm, and you can grow a lot of food in a concentrated area. So the project that um, Dan and I got to see and connect over in uh, Kathmandu, it's built on top of uh, what amounts to an adventure B&B. Um, this B&B, they receive folks, and generally they're folks that are on adventure of some sort. And uh, so uh, the idea of being able to grow food in a place where you can't grow food by conventional means is huge. But even beyond that, it's the ability to grow food that's really healthy, um, avoiding pesticides and herbicides, and, and just really giving you good stuff. Um, if you're familiar with the term food desert, an aquaponics farm is a tool to try to deal with food deserts. So, you know, that's that's what that looks like in Kathmandu. In terms of um, other projects, essentially it's been an awesome way to help folks that are struggling in poverty to have a sustainable food source that we know is, is healthy and good for them. Um, specifically, my involvement here on, on the project in Juneau, um, obviously it's it's cold here in the wintertime and it's dark here in the wintertime. You're not going to be growing any food in the ground. Conventional means there is no agriculture here. So aquaponics, uh, you know, an upland aquaponics farm gives you the opportunity to grow food year round uh, in a place where it's very difficult to get good, healthy, fresh food. So, you know, it's a, it's a tool that can overcome challenges in supply and demand. It's, it's a tool that can um, really lift people out of poverty without having to get a, a super advanced degree or without a huge amount of capital. You know, it's, it does cost money to put uh, an aquaponics farm together. But if you're to compare, you know, different ways to try to help people out, it's a, it's a fairly <laughs> way to do so. So convergence of people who love fishing, doing good, and uh, a source of providing income for folks that's sustainable and effective. So I think in my in my research on this, um, uh, I think I saw that Bucky had said it takes uh, roughly about fifteen thousand dollars to build one of those farms, um, which I thought was pretty incredible. Seeing the amount of food, I forget the statistic that he threw out there, but it was like thousands of pounds of food that is generated in just a year's time or just a few months or something along those lines. Um, but the one thing that I thought was fascinating was, uh, there's essentially no waste produced from these things. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So fish are the nutrient source for the plants. So you pick your fish, it could be trout. If it's a cold water system, you know, if it's a warmer water system, you might use striped bass. Uh, you know, if it's a real warm system, you'd use tilapia. So it d depends on where you're at as to what kind of fish you use in the closed system. But it's the refuse from the fish that fertilize the plants. 
and it's the plants that clean the refuse from the fish out of the fish's water. So you've got this closed loop where the bad stuff from the fish is good stuff for the plants and vice versa. So yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. And, and how much energy does it take to run one of these things? I think from what I saw is a lot of them they set up running off solar power, correct? Well, yeah, it depends on your, your climate and your context. So here in Juneau, we'd have to have grow lights in the wintertime to, to give light to the plants to grow. So that's, an, you know, that's a utility expenditure um, for your uh, water circulation. The fish have to have oxygen to do well. The system is predicated on, you know, good oxygen. Guys that like to fish for trout or salmon, just think about where the fishiest spots are where you right. catch fish. It tends to be where the water is really oxygenated. So that costs uh, money to keep that water circulating. Um, in a cold place like Juno, you also need to keep the system warm, right? Obviously, it can't freeze, and your optimum plant growth kind of starts off at 68 degrees. Well, if it's 10 degrees outside keeping your your structure at 68 degrees there's some expense there sure but when you're shipping food in from seattle and all that food was shipped to seattle from some other place even if you have that utility expenditure of keeping it warm and you know having grow lights that kind of thing it still is more efficient and better than some conventional means of putting good healthy food on the table so so there is some cost involved yeah, I mean, that's one thing we touched on uh, last podcast we did with you was like, you know, the, the cost of living in Alaska is super high just because of having your food shipped in and, you know, fuel, things like that. So, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, you're going to have some costs running the actual farm itself, but you're still technically saving a ton of money because you're not paying for those shipping costs, basically. Uh, that's pretty cool. So how, how many people would you say are fed from just, just one farm, you know, currently? I mean, so, so you guys have one set up in Juneau there? No, so we're on the front end. So okay. um, Fishing Collaborative has been working with me over the past several months to fundraise um, for this project. So in launch mode, um, so we have some uh, land secured. We have some housing secured for the folks that will be benefiting from the aquaponics farm. Um, and really a lot of what we're doing is laying the groundwork. Um, Daniel and I got to present this morning on the housing side of what we're doing. And Daniel is a contractor, engineer, architect, is bringing a specific skill set to that. So, yeah, we're in the launch phase. Um, you know, we filmed our, our fly fishing film tour, uh, the video that will, will come out, the film that will come out. Um, it's been two months now. Um, so that will come out and we'll make the rounds with that. So creating awareness, developing, but... We want to move as quickly as possible because there's people in need. We'd like to serve sooner rather than later, but there's there's cost to do so. For sure, for sure. Is there is there something active right now for people to donate to? Do you have like a GoFundMe or something of that sort? Yeah, so 501c3 organization. Um, so folks can go on the website. They can say, I want to donate to a project. They could either donate to a project in general um, and that'll go into a general fund, or they could specifically say, I want to donate towards the Fly Fishing Collaborative build in Juneau, Alaska. So that's all set up, and, and we've been blessed. So, you know, some folks have already jumped in, but, um, you know, we'd, we'd love to get more folks to circle around this. And what better community than the fishing community to say, hey, come be a part of this thing. And by the way, 
if you uh, want to get involved and you're stoked to be involved, I might invite you to come up and come fishing with me. So, yeah. I'm rubbing my chin. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that kind of draws I'll, in. I'll a, be the narrative. Like, <laughs> that kind of. Sorry, we were real talking over each other. Yeah, yeah no, it's good. <laughs> I mean, that kind of draws into the next question is, you know, how are these farms funded? And you touched on it. Like you were doing some guided kayak fishing trips and those were auctioned off, so to speak. And that's in, in doing some of my research. I saw that, you know, Bucky, Bucky and, and one of the videos that you guys had put together, you know, was talking about that, that you guys have guides from pretty much all over the place donating guided trips and, and and the proceeds from those trips are don't or the trips themselves are donated and then the funds created from uh people purchasing those trips are going to help build these these farms correct yeah that's one one of the ways to support the the farms absolutely and then the donations on top of it obviously um so, I mean, what what are the plans looking into the future? I mean, you mentioned that they're trying to build one in Juneau. Um, any other areas out there that they're trying to trying to build some of these and help out? Or... Yeah, you know, Bucky gets dozens of requests every year to uh, facilitate the creation of an aquaponics farm. And so I'm really blessed as uh, a local partner um, to work with Fly Fishing Collaborative in this way because it's a competitive process. Um, you know, they had a, a kind of a round table uh, a couple months ago when they needed to sit down and figure out the reality that they can't do all the good projects that people ask them to do, right? Because you know, there's only so much time and resources. And so, yeah, there's several uh, more projects on tap. Um, I'll, I'll kind of leave that for the uh, Fly Fishing Collaborative in-house team to kind of showcase sure. when those projects are up and coming. But yeah, there's, there's several more in the pipeline. So basically as much as the fishing community gets together, to make good things happen, that's really the only limitation that they have. They've got a good system in place. So, yeah. well, well, let me ask you this too. Like, so as far as this being done in other countries, um, are you growing indi indigenous foods to the areas, or is it just the kind of the generic, like, you know, corn, you know, other vegetables, you know, maybe maybe rice? I mean, I don't know. I guess you could. I guess you can grow anything hydroponically, right? Sure, sure, yeah. Um, Man, the more local you can get, the better, right? The more you can contextualize what you're doing, the better. So um, from my end, there's some some awesome foods here um, that are really recognized as, um, you know, native or indigenous local foods. And a lot of them are superfoods. But a lot of us folks that um, did not grow up in Southeast Alaskan native culture, we're not aware of those foods. You know, the first time that I had nagoon berries was a few months ago and they're superfood and they're delicious. They're awesome. How cool would that be if I could grow nagoon berries in the winter when no one else is growing them and honor local culture. And by the way, it's a superfood and it's probably a pretty good margin on growing nagoon berries because people like them. They're tasty. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the more you can do that, the better. Um, you know, from a, from a nutrient standpoint, a, a big part of what we're doing here in Juno is, is serving, especially kids, that don't have access um, to healthy food. And, and sometimes these are kids that would go in between or without meals. Um, during the school year, there's kids get subsidized or free lunches. Those same kids can go hungry in the summertime because they're out of school, right? And there's not a, a school lunch program in the summertime. 
So one of the things that we've done is we've partnered to provide healthy lunches for those same kids in the summertime so that they don't go without meals. The cool thing for us is, you know, it's not a, a Twinkie and a snack pack. Yeah. We can grow superfoods and even honor local culture and put something together that's good for them. Well, yeah, so then on that too, since you're growing hydroponics or through hydroponics, um, is your yield doubled every season? Like how, what's your yield output versus, you know, having to deal with the elements in normal circumstances? Obviously in Juno, that's, you know, probably more cold at the time than it is warm. But, you know, as compared to other locations, you know, does it allow you to just put out more food versus having to deal with the seasons? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, growing season in Alaska is short, very, very short. So one one thing I saw um, that Bucky talked about on the Nepal um, farm was I think it was 100 heads of lettuce every month was created from this little farm. I mean, a hundred heads of lettuce, that's a, a lot of freaking lettuce, you know, um, like constant, yeah, right? constant over yeah, and yeah, over yeah. And over. yeah, every month, hundred heads of lettuce. I that's mean, pretty cool. That's, I mean, that's quite a bit of food just in itself, you know? So I was kind of blown away by that statistic. I would, you know, I, I couldn't even imagine a hundred heads of lettuce, you know, that's like going the mound that you see at the grocery stores here in the Chicagoland area, I mean, that's got to be close to 60 heads of lettuce. So you're talking almost double that a month you're, you're generating from, and I mean, it's kind of cool. Um, you know, the way these farms are set up. So one thing I will say is if, uh, you know, you're listening to this and, you know, you get back in front of a computer, you get pulled over on the side of the road uh in a parking lot go on just google fly fishing collaborative and uh they threw together some pretty stellar videos that are hosted on vimeo and um i mean you can see the layout of these farms and it's pretty pretty killer how it's set up i mean it's you know when you think farm you're thinking farmland things like that it's almost like these benches and then they have like a tank of water underneath um the water's circulating there's fish tanks um like josiah had touched on earlier where the fish are kind of feeding off some of these nutrients right but then they're also fertilizing back into the water correct is that how that works i mean in in a layman's terms so to speak i mean i mean you're introducing the food for the fish right so whether that's pelletized feed or you can do an insect feed um and then you know the fish process that feed and it's their waste that feeds the plants gotcha. so you are introducing food for the fish yeah, yeah. gotcha so it, it's pretty crazy i mean that that garden in nepal i mean it wasn't very huge i mean if you had to say space wise what 50 by 100 if that or or 30 by 50 yeah i mean it fits on a section of a rooftop on the yeah it's- yeah i think it's 40 by 30 i could be wrong okay. but yeah. it's about that size. wow yeah yeah it's to speak to the efficiency of aquaponics um i don't deal much with that specific project that was in nepal um i visited it and i'm good friends with the people that oversee it but i also um i have friends i have other friends that are also experts in aquaponics and and one happens to be in nepal as well working on another project 
And just to speak to the efficiency, you can grow a head of lettuce um, in about 15 to 18 days from start to finish. Yeah. Mm. Crazy. Wow, man. And, and <laughs> I know. Some of the popular um, things that he grows specifically would be lettuce, strawberries, um, and other plants and vegetables similar to that. So. That's I need, crazy. I need to get me an aquaponic strawberry field going in my backyard or something. <laughs> you, you know, I, I, I had, what was that? We need flagship builds, man. We can make it happen. You can get the paddle and fin podcast. You know, paddle and strawberries. We can do it. <laughs> you know, and I think I read something on like uh, popular science one time about cities starting to adopt this in the U.S. Like down the road, you know, having basically like not skyscraper but tall type you know hydroponic growing stations for like the cities so they can give them food and everything so i mean i i would bet that this program is probably one of those like i bet there's governments watching this closely to see how this turns out because it could be like you know the, the testing you know of it for worldwide you know as things move forward yeah, you kind of cut out there a little bit, but I think basically what you were saying is this could be a possibility to uh, solve the starvation issue in the world. Yeah. In layman's yeah. term. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think it's adoptable throughout the whole world just in general. You yeah, know, as, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like you know, but I think this is like probably like, you know, I would suspect that big governments are like watching this and going, hmm. You know, like especially in big cities, they're going – you know, this is working here, so we know this will work, and you know, not to veer away from the collective, but yeah, no, 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 I hear you, man. Well, I think that's it's a it's a good talking point though, because what they're doing um, can be looked at worldwide as a solution. You know what I mean? So, uh, kudos to the Fly Fishing Collaborative for what they're doing, and you know, I know they're not the only ones out there doing it, but they're one of the groups in our quote-unquote fishing community that have stepped up and taken it to the next level and helping out mm -hmm. uh, across the world you know and that was the thing too you know i know I, when i first brought this up i listed all those different countries where you guys have already set up farms i mean that alone is unbelievable i mean uh, what was it like 13 of them 10 or 13 of them have already been set up and like Josiah said, I mean, there's more in the works, um, you know, so it's, you know, it's not something that's necessarily going away. So that's only going to expand. So, um, yeah, I, again, my mind's blown by both of yeah. you guys. So I cleaned the garage today. <laughs> hey, Jay. Jay. I'm happy I've sometimes cleaned in the garage. <laughs> pat, pat yourself yeah, on the back, you. Jay. <laughs> <laughs> oh and i cut some hedges i mean i'm on a roll <laughs> that's pretty productive I'm, that's pretty i'm, productive I'm trying to catch me. up to these guys i don't know how close i am but it's more like one of these things they're like I feel... is that that oh it's a tree i can't see him <laughs> no it's very cool man it's very cool so um yeah i i i don't have anything else you got anything else for these guys my man no, hey, I commend you both, man. It's yeah, it's 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 really it's it's pretty cool how much you guys are involved with and what you're doing. I mean, it's 
it's pretty amazing. I mean, it's like you guys are, you know, uh, you, you know, you have a crossover, but and yet you guys are both doing your own thing um, separately, and it's 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 amazing, man. I mean, I can't even fathom, you know, juggling that much. I mean, just it, it's. I'm glad there's. I'm glad you guys are doing this. This is yeah. this is really cool, and I mean, this is a very interesting conversation. Probably one of the best that I think we've had on the, the podcast. Not to knock anybody else. Yeah, yeah. But I mean you guys are so unique in what you're doing. It's 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 pretty cool. Absolutely. So here's the one question we did forget to ask, and I think this is probably one of the most important ones. How did you two meet? So so we actually met in Nepal. Okay. Uh, so I told you before that um was so that my tent? what was it? Is that the tent? <laughs> Is that why the story? <laughs> I only cover up. Hey man, very but, clear in no uncertain terms. This is Nepal, bro. Well, it's funny you said that. So my uh, my snuggle buddy from the uh, the mountain expedition, he is uh, he was actually the one overseeing the project that the Fly Fishing Collaborative did in Nepal. So. He's the good friend of mine, and he met Josiah through that, and so just a mutual connection. And through that, Josiah and I met, and um, I actually was helping him consult on some sustainable building options that he was uh, looking into. Um, so we did some site visits, and we had a little bit of adventure in Nepal as well. And then we just kept in touch. When, when he says site visit, we took a kayak and a fishing rod, and we had a blast. <laughs> <laughs> And a paddleboard, and a paddleboard down class yeah. fives. I, yeah. I'm just saying, I think like that, I mean, you know, we're Jackson guys here. I mean, EJ goes down class fives like it's his job, but like I want to see EJ tackle a class five on a paddleboard. So I think that's no, a challenge. I don't think he's done that. I don't think he has either. I don't, I've never seen it. So Josiah's like, you know, stepping up the game. So I want to see it. The race between EJ and Josiah down class fives on paddleboards. Here it is, EJ. Make the superficial again. And go down a class five. <laughs> Josiah's like, great, you're calling me out to the owner of Jackson Kayaks. <laughs> oh, EJ will do it. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so that's super interesting, man. I mean, you know, like Jay stated, you know, you guys are both, you know, doing some stuff together but it, initially you guys were doing your own kind of uh community service projects so to speak or and that's kind of how you guys met was a crossover in nepal of all places i mean you guys both grew up in the united states and then you meet thousands of miles away in another country and uh form a friendship and a whole nother collaborative right uh to uh just you know better the lives of others so i mean I don't know. With that being said, thank you to both of you for being such uh, great human beings, for sure. So it's it's a, it's a fun adventure. I'm blessed, man. It's, yeah, it's man. fun. It's it's, it's 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 a neat community too. And seriously, I mean, it's the fishing community is at the core of a lot of this stuff for me. And it's really natural in that, you know, you you got a hard day of work and you're dealing with the issues that. That, you know, you personally and, and we collectively as people face, it can be overwhelming. It can be frustrating. And I think it's no accident sure. that we're guys that 
relax and decompress with a with a fly rod or a paddle in hand, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's there's a neat thread there um, that that we can really take something that on a surface level is not viewed as a tool for good and it's a huge component of that. I mean, literally, mm-hmm. you know, Dan's in, in country for a little bit and he's, you know, taking some time to decompress. He and his wife are expecting they've got a baby on the way. Oh, congrats, oh. dude. Yeah. Part of his trip was, man, I got to go decompress. Let me call Josiah <laughs> and see if we can get on some fish. So yeah. <laughs> yesterday, Dan Dan procured some seafood. It was awesome, man. Got out on the boat. It was, it was a good day. But, it, you know, it's a there's a natural component of doing those kinds of things to be healthy in the, in the work that we're doing. So yeah, there's, there's something to it for sure. I'm still learning, but man, it's absolutely, man. Well, congratulations on the baby, Dan, uh, boy or girl. Don't know yet. Don't know yet. Well, very cool, man. Very cool. Well, gentlemen, um, I think that pretty much uh, comes to conclusion. Do you guys want to shout out any of your uh, projects that you're working on where people can go donate, help out, anything to help your guys' causes? You want to drop uh, drop some website names and stuff, and I'll also drop them in the show notes of the episode as well. Yeah, sweet. So flyfishingcollaborative.org, that's the dignified income side of what I'm doing up here. So that's creating aquaponics farms. Um, from a multi-level use standpoint, right? So to serve kids that might otherwise go without meals, to provide jobs for folks that might not otherwise find employment, and to do so in a therapeutic and uplifting way. So that's flyfishingcollaborative.org. Um, agathosinternational.org, and you can just uh, uh, straight up Google Agathos Village. That's the housing side of what we're doing, providing affordable housing for folks that might not otherwise find affordable housing. And that housing includes on-site programs and services and opportunities for dignified income. That's what Daniel's up here helping me with. You know, he's bringing his architectural engineering expertise. He's built homes around the world. Um, so he's looking over my shoulder, making sure, you know, our plans for tiny homes and, and neat structures that are sustainable here make good sense and are earthquake weather and cold proof. So we're, nice. we're still. But, yeah, if you've ever been in a situation where. You've known someone who struggled to, to find a home and that place of, of permanence, of stability, of security. It's a really big deal. So it's a it's a great cause to get involved in. Um, you know, on the uh, uh, org side, I'll say this, too. We've looked at experiential therapy as something that's huge. So taking people on adventures and I'm, I'm stoked, excuse me, to give a shout out to Jackson Adventures and that, you know, our, our rebrand. Um, or, or I would say evolution and growth is, is a kayaking company is really tapping into the, the purpose of adventures, right? The, the way that we connect as a community, the way that we um, are able to be the best versions of ourselves, getting out and stretching ourselves. Um, it's pretty cool, the convergence for me of these nonprofit endeavors, but literally here on the Paddle and Fin podcast, the company that we represent from a kayaking standpoint is going that direction saying, hey, Get out and have an adventure that mm-hmm. impacts your family, impacts your friends for good. We're all better for it. So it's a cool, cool full circle kind of deal for me. So Jackson Adventures, it's live. We can talk about it. Yeah. We're still- Heck yeah, man. Heck yeah. Yeah. We've been biting the tongue on that one for for a hot minute. <laughs> <laughs> um, a little bit. How about you, Dan? Do you got anybody, organizations, anything that you work with you want to shout out from like back in Nepal, anything like that, man? 
I mean, not not currently off the top of my head. Um, so I'm in a, a little bit of a situation in terms of my job that Josiah is in. So the 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 pro- projects that I would be working with that um, that uh, uh, would be this or anything like that, all the ones that Josiah just mentioned, actually. So I don't have okay. anything to add to that. Okay. Um, so yeah, that 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 would be what I'm currently working with. So okay, yeah, I just didn't know if you had any other things, man. We didn't we didn't want you to feel left out, buddy. <laughs> so <laughs> no. so thoughtful. <laughs> well, we we appreciate you both, man, taking the time out and uh, and again uh, sharing sharing the stories, sharing the info, and uh, fighting the good fight. So that being said, guys, till next time, tight lines, smooth paddling. Go check out the website, guys, paddle, the letter N and fin.com. Also, check out YouTube, youtube.com forward slash paddle and fin. If you got a question, comment, want to hear from a future guest, feel free to email us at paddle, the letter N and fin at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We're doing giveaways, announcements, things like that at Facebook and Instagram at paddle and fin. Shout out to our show supporters, Rocktown Adventures, Loveland Canoe and Kayak, Hammered Lures, Fish Mob Lures, TRC Covers, Catch Products. Go to catchproducts.com. You can put the Paddle and Fin logo right on your catch board. Don't forget to go over and pick up your Jig Masters jigs. Use promo code PNF20 and save 20% today. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. It helps grow the audience, helps others find our podcast. So please drop a five-star rating in on the podcast platform you're listening on. Don't forget about the recycled plastics program, you guys. Take your used plastic baits, put them in an envelope, mail them to the address in the show notes. Our man Eric Richards at Hammered Lures melts those down, makes new baits, and donates them to various chapters of Heroes on the Water. succeed you want to fish you want to be one of the greatest tune in to west marines life on the water presented by costa custom boats every saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m eastern on waypoint tv you'd think with four of us spread out on a tiny island that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing but as i've learned no matter where i've been whitetails can be damn tricky Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern.
Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.